Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Music History Project. Today is a very big episode all about big bands. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we're excited to talk all about big bands. This is quite the subject. So we've done our best to condense this into only two parts. And we're going to try to cover as much of the overview of big bands as we can. Part of the problem is um, I cut my teeth in interviews with the big bands. I had a radio program when I was a kid and um, a a uh, jukebox Saturday night program on KCEA, that's 89.1 FM, and uh, <laughs> with my good partner, the late, great Jerry Jacobs, and we had wonderful capers one after another, one of which was the ability to interview some of the big band singers, arrangers, songwriters, band leaders, uh, sidemen, managers, anybody we could get our hands on, um, because they were all still around. This is in the early 1980s. And it was a great education. So poor Michelle and Mike have been sort of dragged into this history because it's my, part of my history. And I'm so grateful that they've taken the time to uh, go through some of these interviews to uh, outline this uh, the next couple of podcasts here. I really think it's important because the big band era was a very interesting one in American music history. And some of the characters whom you will be hearing from in the next uh, couple of podcasts to me are very compelling. They're one of the main reasons why I still do and love what I do and love, which is capture history, uh, in particular that related to music. So um, the first couple of folks I interviewed, Trummy Young being the very first, played trombone for uh, Louis Armstrong. And I was so endeared by everything that guy said. And I think each of the people that you're gonna be hearing from had that same sort of impact on me because I wasn't around during the big band era, but I knew through my grandfather and other people, uh, Jerry Jacobs being one of them, that that was a very interesting time period. It was a time when one band could play and the entire family could enjoy it. So grandpa could bring the grandkids and at some point, of course, they might start with a foxtrot (laughs) and by the end of the evening, play a jitterbug and everybody would be entertained. And that whole concept was very interesting to me because I didn't know, you know, if I played rock and roll to my mom, she'd leave the room. So uh, to me, it was very captivating. And of course, you throw in all the different elements, the fact that a Great Depression was going on and that most people could barely afford to go to a dance and they somehow justified that why did they justify it because hey you know that quarter spent at going for a couple of hours to the dance was a hell of a lot better than looking at the empty wall that used to be your favorite painting that you had to hawk to get the the rent or to pay the milk i mean you know it was a very depressing time and 
people yet turn to music to help them. And it was very therapeutic. And as a result, this dance craze started because of these bands. And these bands grew to be big bands because they needed to accommodate the sound of the shuffling of the feet of all these people <laughs> dancing in front of them. So the whole thing was just compelling to me from the, you know, the very beginning. And the fact that there were so many types of music that was being played. A lot of us just think of swing and think, okay, that was a big band era. Well, that's why we're not calling this podcast the swing era. We're calling it the big bands because we want to incorporate the jazzers, you know, the Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong that played straight up jazz during that time. We want to include the society bands like Dig Churgens, who we're going to be hearing from, uh, folks that you've heard of like Guy Lombardo and, and Russ Morgan, who played sort of sappy music in ballrooms all across this country and really all around the world. And that was you know, for dinner music so that people could enjoy music as they enjoyed the evening together out. Because again, this is a big event going out to dinner during that era. And of course, there was uh, the, the dance craze, the guys who like Jimmy Lunsford that played straight up danceable music. Uh, Tommy Dorsey's another great one who hired a young kid named Frank Sinatra and <laughs> sort of changed American history. And of course, there was definitely the swing bands like Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw who played music that you could dance to and not dance to. Some of it was a little bit more complicated. You didn't necessarily dance to it, but you enjoyed it. And it filled ballrooms and nightclubs and even Carnegie Hall. Uh, it was a very, very compelling time. And as you can tell, I'm a little passionate about it just because <laughs> I was so interested in the individuals. I mean, some of the folks that you're going to be hearing from today, I have to say, became personal friends of mine. Jonah Jones, for example, was a dear, dear friend. In fact, my son is named after him. So Dick Jurgens, a guy I spent lots and lots of time with. Um, just learning from just as a sponge. Okay, what was this like? Who was that guy? You know, I was listening to Michelle recently listening to Dick's interview. And I at the end of it, after we were done sort of doing what I needed to do for the radio program, I just want to learn from him. Hey, what was Irving Berlin like? Did you ever meet Ella Fitzgerald? I mean, I was just like <laughs> so excited to know what he knew because he lived through an era that I thought was very compelling and I did not live through it. But I think vicariously I did. So today is all about that. Um, and I really think maybe a really good start is to give an overview of the big band era from a good friend of mine. John Tumpak, who in 2008 wrote a song called, I mean, uh, wrote a book called When Swing Was the Thing, and really spent his life outlining that history. And I think he does a wonderful job uh, providing us with an overview. What were your thoughts when you listened to his interview, Michelle? It was just such a good one to start with. It kind of got me in the mood to put together this podcast and the outline. And it was it was nice because it got me really excited, which is why we went from one podcast about the big band to two. <laughs> See, it's not all my fault. Okay, good. <laughs> so here's John Tumpak giving us an overview of the big band era. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your your take on the big bands in, in America, because of course this had a huge influence on the music uh, musical instrument society and mm. our and our industry. Mm. Um, what did you take, what's your takeaway as to how that 
grow, uh, grew and developed so importantly in this country? Well, two things. First of all, here domestically in the United States, uh, big bands played an important part in our American cultural history, as you know. They dominated American entertainment from August 21st, 1935, it's a valid date because that's when Benny Goodman had that big deal over at the Palomar Ballroom until after the war. I mean, let's face it, they sold all the records, the ballrooms were packed, many, many movies, they were on the radio every night of the week. So they played a very important contribution to our cultural history and that of course was their origin. But I think something that's frequently overlooked is the international impact of our American big era, big band era, overseas. And uh, that was important. Pri in England, prior to about 1940, that was called the 30s, the golden age of the great British dance bands. You probably heard of Ambrose, Loose Stone, Roy Fox. Really nice light dancing music. I liked it. But then in the very early 40s, two things happened. Number one, they caught up to American music and developed an outstanding military unit called the Squadronaires, similar to our airmen of note today. And then of course Glenn Miller hit and everyone went wild about the big bands. Continued after the war, you know there was a Ted Heath, Sid Lawrence, today the trombonist Christine is popular took place in Germany, the SWR big band. It happened, I have to mention it, but on a very dark note, Nazi Germany did have a propaganda band, Charlie and his orchestra, and their big band activities continued after the war. Of course, there was, I forget, the state-owned Dutch big band, yeah, and uh, Clark Boland in France. And the other night, Dan, a friend of mine sent me a DVD. It was a 2014 BBC Battle of the Bands, similar to our PBS fundraisers, their series of proms. I watched that, and I got to say, I mean, I'm going to watch it again tonight or tomorrow. It's some of the best big band music I ever saw played. So our impact was transferred overseas. And what do you know about the impact it had on the sale of musical instruments and the popularity of instruments as a result of it being so popular in, in the culture? Oh, it had a fantastic popularity for so, in many, many ways. First of all, people became aware of musical instruments. I mean, you know, it was like today, when I was a kid, probably you, you're a baseball fan, you know the players on your favorite team type thing. All the teens in the music knew the most popular trumpet players, saxophone players, we could go down the line in instruments. But the point is, the identity of instruments was brought to the American public and some new instruments were brought into play, as you well know, like the clarinet. That had not really been that dramatically popular. But then, of course, you had the constant titanic struggles, musically, that is, of Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman. And uh, also, I got to say, in my view, Jimmy Dorsey and Woody Herman were good clarinetists. But the point is, by leading their very popular bands, and that being their instrument, it brought a new identity to clarinets. Well said, yeah, yeah, that's very true. And I think you're probably right. That's probably true of other instruments and other leaders who had uh, the trombone and, and Tommy Dorsey come to mind. Of course, Tommy Dorsey, the trombone, uh, Harry James with the trumpet, 
uh, Count Basie on the piano, and you could go on and on. All the great band leaders got there, the popular band leaders of the day, by playing an instrument. They certainly became identified by their instrument. But again, by little kids collecting baseball cards, they all knew the their favorite instrument. instrument uh, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Well said. Again, getting back to the international aspect, in the early 90s, you may have seen it, it got very good critical reviews. There was a movie out called Swing Kids, and it was about uh, uh, the rise of Hitler, our big bands, how he obviously quashed them, but at the same time, there was an interest in Germany, and even, uh, even kids there would argue who's playing the trumpet. Is it Bunny Berrigan, Harry James, or what? So again, our big band music did transfer overseas, sadly, sometimes in dark conditions. Well, of course, the, you know, the, the beginning of jazz and the formation of larger bands mm -hmm. in the late 20s when yes. they began to be recorded, I'm thinking of like Duke Ellington and people like that, mm -hmm. um, really exploded um, at the time of the, uh, the Great Depression, which looking back economically doesn't make a lot of sense that there would be more people going to these dances and so on. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you saw the growth of the big bands during that time. Yeah, the big bands numerically in number of musicians did start to grow in the late 20s. And in the first half of the 30s, they were very popular. They got occasional movie shots, radio shots, sold some records, came to public attention. But life's funny. We know that when something happens, it just isn't that one day of happening events lead up to it and on August 21st of 1935 historically that was the day that Benny Goodman opened at the old Palomar Ballroom on 3rd and Vermont in LA and there are many stories but I can personally attest to one Donald Kahn the son of Gus Kahn the songwriter was a good friend of mine he was there that night and he said the accounts that you saw were true he said Benny Goodman started out playing staid dance music. Uh, nothing was happening. All of a sudden he opened up with the Fletcher Henderson arrangements. Unlike the Goodman movie where everybody all of a sudden went into an instant riot, he said over a few numbers people really did get up, started dancing, went to the bandstand, watch the musicians and he said by the end he said there was quite a fuss going on so that one event reported to the press with Benny Goodman being on the old movie newsreels and next week's cover of Time magazine kicked off in public image the big band era which certainly evolved prior to that but that was the spark if you will in public recognition. And how did it grow after that? After that uh, it grew by itself. It didn't have to do anything. <laughs> you know, you're on all, of course, the communication of the news in those days or the old, what do they call them, Warner Path there? Whatever the newsreels were. There were two or three competing ones. They were, every week for a period of time, there'd be a snippet of Benny Goodman or somebody playing. All of a sudden, they get tremendous record exposure. They started being on the radio every night of the week. Records were selling, and it just took off like a popular TV show. I remember when I was a little kid, that Davy Crockett show on Disney. It came on, and within one week, everybody was wearing coonskin caps. It was that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Very interesting. So what do you consider some of the milestones of the Big Band era? I mean, you mentioned that Palomar um, and Palladium, there's also the, um, the Carnegie Hall. Yes, that was a big one. It legitimatized, if you will, Big Band music. Uh, I think that it was January, I think the 16th of 1938. Benny Goodman played at Carnegie Hall. And of course, among the old staid uh, classical music buffs, they were about to pick it with he being there. But he took over. And the tapes from that, I think you're aware, were found not until 1950, when he was mid-50s, when he was going through the closet at his home in Greenwich, Connecticut. And when you listen to them, there's tremendous audience applause. That was a big milestone. Another milestone came uh, at the Glen Island Casino with Glenn Miller in 1939. He got the radio wire, and it's interesting. Who could say who's famous? I mean, people try out for a movie role. They pick somebody, and he's a star overnight. You don't know. Anyway, Glenn Miller gets the radio shot. And uh, that night, Tom Shields, wonderful man, Glenn Miller's business manager, one of the sweetest guys I ever knew. I interviewed him for one of my articles. He said that night they had the old horn telephone, one in the Glen Island Casino, and he said shortly after their first set, you could not call in. He said people were calling in to make reservations for the next night. The line was flooded. And how can we say in the course of human events who makes it and doesn't? But that was a spark that kicked things off. Then, of course, I would say another event that sadly lasted three or four years was the role and contribution of big bands to the war effort. It was truly a morale booster. I remember my father-in-law, he was working at the Douglas plant here in Santa Monica. And and he said there was a period of time where they passed laws where for 24 hours a day a bar or a lounge could be open and they'd have big bands around the clock. The worker gets off their shift, they go there, they drink, they'll meet, they'll dance, that kind of thing. They made a true psychological contribution to the war effort. And speaking of that, what are your thoughts of the, um, the role of the V-Discs? The V-Disc, to him, I thought is this. First of all, they were good. They played an important role. And one of the founding fathers was my old friend George Simon. Now, the music, I like it because I have some V-Discs at home. And, uh, you know, the artists play different songs in addition to their hit songs. But... Uh, the one thing I don't mean, I'm not saying generically that I'm against public law, but the legal entanglements that go with it to have gotten them released so the public can share so long after the war those outstanding recordings. It's one thing two days after the armistice was signed to say let's release the V-Discs, but 50 years later, like George Simon said, they're all dead, who cares? <laughs> Well, maybe you should explain a little bit about the history of the Vetus now that you mentioned it was entangled with that because they were created originally for morale boosters for the troops. So as a result, you had artists playing together that their record contracts never would have allowed them to do Oh, that. no, you're correct. They never, never would have played together or recorded in that Studio ABC or anything. It was a 
total, complete war effort. Let's face it, people are people. You work in an office, you like some, you dislike others. Half these musicians were at odds all the time, but for the war effort, they come together. There'd be 30, 40 minutes, uh, two hours apiece. They'll play, the records were stamped, they were sent overseas, and as I said, I thought the call to me, I enjoyed the music, I thought they were great. Yeah, and so, and, uh, but then of course, legally, how are you going to get these artists to do that? So the union agreed, Petrillo probably is, is classically known as bantered, I don't know if it's true, with the revolver sitting on his desk, said to the union guys, go ahead, we will not argue, do this for the war effort. And they signed papers, they couldn't be released, this and that. But I must confess to you, Dan, avoid a knowledge, the legal machinations that went about to bring them released, I, I, I have no idea. I'm just glad they did. Oh, I'm glad they did, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. No, I would have made a bad lawyer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one of the first times that I heard um, Ella Fitzgerald playing with a whole white band. Oh, yes. Up until that point, that never would have happened. It happened only once before. In 37, she sang, I, it escapes me, a hit record with Benny Goodman for one recording. Right. And you know Benny Goodman, to that man's defense, everyone would tell you he was truly a colorblind individual. He didn't care who they are. They could have been the proverbial man from Mars if they could play there in his band. And he wanted her. That was a recording. And, uh, and that was it. Well, and that brings up another thing I'd love to have you talk a little bit about, and that is the breaking of the color line in, in music. And he certainly played a huge role in that. Yes, Benny, out of all the band leaders, again, he did not have a mission that could have been one of, say, civil rights or affirmative action. He had one mission, music. Uh, you've probably read those stories. He was absent-minded, didn't know where he was, was in a fog all the time with music. He was a genius. And so he wanted the best musicians and didn't care who they are or where they came from. Exhibit Charlie Christian, for instance. So he was the one that took the initiative to break, if you will, the color line. And I think as wasn't too long after Palomar, I believe, at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York, when he included Teddy Wilson on stage in the orchestra. That was an innovation. And every now and then, you would have musicians playing together. The spiritual swing concerts that John Hammond put on at Carnegie Hall, that was mixed, if you will, as was Benny Goodman in Carnegie Hall. Uh, the, was, uh, uh, the musicians liked each other. They would frequently get together and jam the white and black musicians after their various events in the same town. And also, too, overlooked is that many white bands historically went up to Harlem, to the Savoy, and were very well received. Out of all, I read once, out of all the big bands that did play the Savoy, one of the ones that had the most gigs was Charlie Barnett. And Glenn Miller, uh, too, the night he played, it was very, very well received. I remember that. And Chuck Cecil, I, oh, oh my Lord, this, uh, this is heaven to me. I'm cleaning out my mother's house, and the other day I thought I lost it. I lost the 10 
part series on Glenn Miller that Chuck Cecil recorded 20, 30 years ago. Hundreds of dollars on Amazon. It was on, on eBay. It was there. And I replayed some of the Miller interview. And on there, Chummy McGregor was interviewed. And Chuck Cecil says, could you talk a bit about your appearance at the Savoy Ballroom. He said, yes, he said. He said, you could not believe, he said, how well we were accepted. And in my view, one of the reasons was simply the difference in musical styles. He said, you'd have come Chick Webb coming in roaring Count Basie. We'd pay the, play these very pretty ballads. He said, Ray Eberly said, who really wasn't that great, but could do a good ballad. He said, they hadn't heard that kind of thing before. So it was highly successful. Very interesting. So what is your take on the demise of the big bands? Well, there are a couple of reasons, one of which is metaphysical. <laughs> Here it is. First of all, during the war, you had uh, musicians drafted. There were hardly any left. You were taking some guy who maybe at best could play the bad notes on a saxophone at a bar in Toledo, Ohio, and he was paid exorbitant money to play with Benny Goodman. So the salaries were driven up. As a baseball fan, as an analogy, you may have heard of, and it happened for one season, the one-armed ball player Pete Gray who played for the St. Louis Browns. That's what the war did. It reduced everything to no one left type of thing. So the salaries were driven up. Then after the war, the troops came home and they immediately flooded the market and all these guys who couldn't play well were back to the local bar. And also there was a cultural change. You're sitting in a foxhole for four years. You're going to get home. You'll probably want to marry your old sweetheart, settle down, have a family, get a house, go to school on the GI Bill. People started to go. They started to stop going to the dance halls and the like. Business dramatically fell off. Uh, uh, orchestra leaders were saddled with huge costs and then of course a diabolical instrument came along which we've heard of called TV and then the, re the to me the big thing is this George Bernard Shaw once said nothing is forever life will always change what a great overview of the big band era and I have a question coming out of that what is a V-disc? <laughs> oh, well, that's a great question. Uh, we actually have one physically in front of us. Oh, yeah, um, there it is. <laughs> looks a, like a record. It's a record. <laughs> 78 RPM. Some of them were 16-inch. This is a 12-inch one, um, which required a longer arm. Um, but basically, the label is red, white, and blue, and it stands for a victory disc. The idea behind it was to generate music for the troops overseas so that they could have a bit of home while they're fighting the war effort. And as a result of that, there were a couple of dilemmas, one of which was there was a nationwide recording strike going on at the time so that the big stars were not in the recording studios because of this strike. However, the war gets to trump all that and said, hey, to all the artists and all the recording studio engineers and the record labels, this is what we want to do. We want to rally our troops. This is a big war going on and we need your help. And all the artists went to their managers and said, I want to help. I want to do this. 
So these V-discs became really kind of a, an important element of the morale. But interestingly enough, historically speaking, it paired performers that never would have worked together otherwise because they were under contract to two different labels. But now it didn't matter if they were in New York and their the recording studio was close by. Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby sang for the first time on a V-disc. Al Jolson and Bing Crosby sang for the first time on a V-disc. People that would work sort of competitors, if you will, or at least working for different labels, get got to perform. And I think one of the coolest things I heard was, and this was years before it became trendy in the 60s and 70s, uh, a lot of the members of the Duke Ellington band were playing with Count Basie. <laughs> and that was really, really cool. So there were a lot of fun little things like that that happened. And another thing that was neat was that some of the artists would do a little introduction. So you got to hear their voice. You know, I remember Ken Griffith um, was one of them that said, hey, fellas, thanks for doing everything you're doing for us. We're back home, you know, rooting for you. And we want to play a little music uh, to soothe your soul, stuff like that. And so now, interestingly enough, all of these V-Discs were supposed to be destroyed after the war because they shouldn't be resold. They were never meant to be sold to begin with. Um, they uh, they broke a bunch of contracts. Uh, <laughs> people like Sinatra and Crosby and Tommy Dorsey didn't get paid for these. A lot of them just offered their time. So they didn't want them to be resold. Um, so they asked, you know, that they be destroyed. Well, most of the soldiers brought back duffel bags full of them <laughs> because they knew how cool they were and they were a souvenir of their time. And I remember in about 1984, uh, my partner uh, in, on radio, Jerry Jacobs, and I had the idea of asking our listeners, would they please give us some of their V-Disc? We want to have a whole thing about, uh, I think it was VJ Day, or maybe it was Victory Europe Day, I can't remember. But anyway, one of the big anniversaries of World War II. And it was amazing. Hundreds of V-Discs showed up at the radio station wow. and we recorded them and returned them. And we had such a blast. Uh, I think Michelle came across some of those cassette tapes of the of the VE Day uh, V-Disc celebration. And that's where I, I got to know a little bit about this history. And again, a nice little pocket of history of some uniquenesses that happened during the big band era, you know, people coming together. I mean, that's a great generation, the greatest generation we keep hearing about, pulling your bootstraps up and making the most out of a war and a depression. And these guys are doing everything they can to help the war effort and creating music specifically for troops. Um, I don't think has ever been before since done. And it's um, it's um, completely compelling to me about the music of that era and and the connection that people had to music. You know, I I'm, I'm reminded of the song "White Christmas" by Irving Berlin during this conversation because that song represented what home was like. It was not even thought to be a hit. In fact, they didn't even originally release it. They didn't think it was going to be a big hit record, but. It became that because the soldiers were thinking about dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones I used to know. And that concept echoed to mom and sister back home, like, ah, you know, I dream of a white Christmas with him back. You know, that whole thing 
is what music did for that war. And the big bands flourished during that time because of it, because it was a connectability. Maybe they weren't dancing as much because their loved one is fighting a war, but it wasn't about dancing at that moment. It was about that sound, about the things that they shared together. You know, silly songs like the Andrews sisters saying, don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else but me. You know, while you're away, you know, just think of me and, and all these kind of fun, compelling things. What was the underlying source of it? Music. And the big bands were there. So thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> that was a great answer. <laughs> so moving on, um, now that we've heard an overview of the big band era and what it's like, um, we're going to move on to talking about the arrangers. So, Michelle, who are we going to hear from in this segment? I just want to preface that answer with <laughs> we had a ton of different interviews from a lot of people, and it was super hard to narrow down. Hmm. The two that you're going to hear from are Sammy Nestico and Billy May. We had individual interviews with these gentlemen as well. But this one, where they're interviewed together, is gold. <laughs> I just, I think I could probably listen to this interview six or seven times and just be entertained the whole time. So you're going to hear from Sammy Nestico and Billy May talking about working together, um, how they became arrangers, and just some of the, th the things that they've worked on and who they've worked with. We were doing a show, Emergency. Listen, this is a great story about <laughs> Billy. So he's... Billy is a, a genius, and he's writing this music faster than I can orchestrate it, you know. And he says, I'm getting a little tired, Sam. Take the rest of it home and orchestrate it at home. So he had already, he was way ahead of me on this thing. So I brought it home, and I said, oh. I called him, Bill, two pages stuck together, and there's 16 bars in here that are blank, just the timings. Oh, I said, just fill it in, Sam. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm going to take Billy's material from earlier, transpose it up a minor third. I'm going to take it, and it'll sound just like Billy May wrote it, because it was his material. And I went in the next day, and Billy's conducting, and up comes this cue. <laughs> Billy probably doesn't remember this, but this cue came up, and he's directing, and I'm sitting there kind of a little nervous, you know. And he's doing, he said, wait a minute, hold everything. What the heck is this? This sounds like Count Basie. <laughs> and then he broke out laughing. He said, Sammy wrote that. <laughs> it well, didn't we sound, a, it sound like Billy May. <laughs> we had a lot of fun because uh, all, the, all the same, we used the same musicians as much as possible. So it was like a, that was a good thing when the, from the big band era, you worked with the same musicians every night. And you not only knew their limitations, but you knew a lot about them personally, you know. We went, I went with, uh, somebody offered me a chance to go with a Glenn Miller reunion band in 1982. Now there hadn't been a Glenn Miller band for 40 years prior to that. So we went over to Australia, a bunch of us, and they got seven or eight guys that were still around and still played. And we all went over there to Australia. And after two or three one-nighters on the bus and everything, all the old jokes came out. All the old idiosyncrasies. <laughs> People didn't change, you know. It was really a wonderful experience. That's terrific. Well, I, I have some uh, questions about uh, your early um, influences musically. You were both born in Pittsburgh. 
Right. But you didn't know each other uh, back when no. we were kids. Yeah, right? no, no. And in school, Billy, you uh, picked up the, the two. Yeah, I, w I went, started going to high school, and there was a, a chance to play in the, like a beginner's band. And I went in and told them I, I was interested. And uh, they, one of the older kids was a tuba player, and he took me and showed me how to play on an upright tuba. And then I got an E-flat sousaphone, you know. And I played that, and, and uh, it was a good thing, because I've often thought, even with the limited, you know, uh, library that they had, I was still playing the bass notes and getting the idea of, of uh, the bass in the band and the, how important it is and everything like that. And I soon figured out that the mechanics of a brass instrument, whether it's a slide that goes in and out, or the valves which lengthen the tube, was the same thing. The, the length of the tube had to be changed a little bit. And so by the time I got out of high school, I was playing uh, uh, professional trombone, and I'd already started doubling on trumpet. And uh, when I went to char with Charlie Barnett, which was 1939, he came through Pittsburgh, and he had a good band with a lot of, with, with four or five saxes and I think six brass. And I was writing for a, a band called Baron Elliott, who played like Guy Lombardo, you know. And I went out and asked Charlie, I'd like to make an arrangement for him. And he said, okay, bring it in tomorrow. So I stayed up all night and wrote the arrangement. And he bought it and uh, hired me right then and there. I did five arrangements for him and sent them in. The, the band left town. And Charlie, <clears throat> shortly after that, he had another marital experience and the band broke up. <laughs> so, but the following uh, February, I heard the band on the radio from the uh, famous store in New York. So I wrote him a letter and asked him, please pay me for the arrangements I sent you. And instead he called me up and offered me a job, come to New York. And so that's what I did and I never went back. Wow. I ended up playing trumpet for Charlie. <laughs> you actually both worked for Barnett at one point. And we both yeah. worked for Baron Elliott too. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I saw his name on my trombone part, you know. And then I went with Charlie Barnett. After, I kept following him, you know. But, yeah, what kind of guy was Barnett? He was a fun guy. He, he enjoyed fun. having fun, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was fun. I often have read that because he had his own means, he didn't necessarily go to gigs to make money, so it no. was a little bit more. Yeah, he enjoyed it. He enjoyed. He enjoyed. He had a uh, uh, independent income, you know, and he just enjoyed life, you know. I think his mother was. Uh, very rich, uh, wealthy yeah, from was, the New York Central yeah, Railroad. But Charlie was, well, the one story about Charlie that I like to tell about his mother, I went into the Palladium, this was many years later, and he had a band playing in the Palladium, and I went in to hear him, and I was sitting there, and his mother was sitting at a table over there, and he invited me to sit with her, and I did. And she's a, she was a very nice lady, very, very proper, Upper East Side, New York, you know, and uh, <clears throat> so Charlie came over after after he was done, and he was he was a he had a very nice he could be a good gentleman when he wanted to, and he said 
he said, uh, I'll see you in the morning, mother, and we'll have lunch. And he said, I'll see you then. Goodbye. And he gave her a little kiss, and he walked out the door. And she was really a nice-looking lady, you know, very handsome, very upper crust. And he walked, walked out the door, and he walked over towards one of the doors in the, in the Palladium there. And out from behind a pillar, those big pillars there, out from behind the pillar came a wild-looking lady with heels, you know, up to here and everything flopping and waving in the breeze. Really a, a wonderful lady of the evening, you know. And as Charlie went out the door, he grabbed his arms and they went out the door together. And Charlie's mother turned, turned to me and she said, poor Charles, she said, he's just like his father. The, the girls won't leave him alone. <laughs> That isn't the way I remember, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> that gives you an idea of the kind of the kind of background Barnett had, you know. Well, I remember we worked at the we worked right on Broadway. There was a little uh, the aquarium they called it the aquarium, and we worked right off Broadway. The doors were open; people could hear as they walked down. And we had a great job there. And when Friday took off, and he didn't come back for four days. Yeah, he went right. to Atlantic City. Right. And there's the band there without a band leader for four days. I'm sure the people there didn't particularly, but he had a girlfriend and he took a Right, right. It's more important. <laughs> the important things. <laughs> what were the challenges for um, arranging for Barnett? Were there? Char Barnett's band was way ahead musically, I felt. Yes. Uh, compared to what was popular in those days. The popular bands in, in the swing bands were uh, uh, Benny Goodman and uh, bands like Glenn Gray, the Castle Home Orchestra. And Charlie's band had an inclination to play arrangements like, like the, the black bands were playing, like uh, Duke Ellington and Basie and things like that. And uh, so that I enjoyed doing things along that line because I felt they were more interesting than the average, what the the uh, average music musicians were playing in those days. Did you do the Cherokee? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, he did the. Yeah. Tell the, us about how that came about. Two big things for Barnett. Absolutely. Oh, I don't know. The trombone players were going boo wah woo wah, because Glenn Miller had made a record of uh, Tuxedo Junction tuxedo. and used the plungers on the front. So they started doing that, and I figured, well, we might be able to make something. And uh, Jerry Gray had just made the arrangement of uh, Begin the Begin for Artie Shaw. And it, the trick of it was there was a, uh, a vamp in the beginning, you know, beep, beep, do wah do wah do da, boop, boop. And I figured if we could get something going like that with Charlie, but with his colors, would be the thing. So that's what I did. I took the trombones going boo wop with the thing, and I wrote a, a, a vamp, four bar vamp. Boom, bop, bop, I put that on the front, and it became a big seller for Charlie. I wrote an arrangement for the Boston Pops on that 50 years later, and I used that lick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, put that in. 
<laughs> I used Billy's lick on that for the Boston Pops. <laughs> well, you know, that Cherokee arrangement was so important, I think, to the Barnett band, it really kind of helped yes, establish it did. Yes, what it their did. sound was. It really did. But you're right, that band was, that was a much more fun yeah. band. It wasn't as structured as the yeah. band. And he ran the band the same way he lived his life, you know. Mm. Show up and that's it, you know. It was a really, really a relaxed band, and I then I, I worked for him for two years, and uh, then Bar, then Glenn Miller offered me a job, and it, going to work for Glenn Miller was like going to work in a factory compared to to uh, Barnett. You know, it was so much fun. Billy, when you had your band, what was the the differences in leading the band as opposed to what, what Sammy is talking about, just playing the role of the arranger? Well, I enjoyed being an arranger more than being a band leader. Because when you're a band leader, you have to stand up there and smile and pretend you're happy. You, know? <laughs> you have to schmooze people. Plus yeah. You have problems in the band with personal. Someone came, yeah, band people, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, a woman can, will come up to you somewhere and say, can you play Happy Birthday to Myrtle? You know, and uh, you don't give a goddamn about her birthday. You know? I love it. Bill. Yeah, that's the truth. But that's the way it works. You, you deal with that kind of junk all the time. Yeah. When you're writing, you have a rapport with the yeah. band leader or the you know for the record date for the, the guys singer, that are playing, like yeah. you did with Frank Sinatra. Yeah. you know, and, and it's a lot more. It's nicer. It's more exciting. You have something that lasts for a long time. A one night, or you're not there anymore. But a record, it's there for a right. long time. <clears throat> Tell me when was the turning point in your mind from playing in the band to arranging? Uh, when I was in the service. Mm. I really didn't want to. I played it in the evening to make a few dollars. But what a great tool I had there. They had a 40, 50 strings. Well, I had a string or a symphony orchestra there. It wasn't like the LA Symphony or anything, but it was a good tool to work with. And I started writing, calling the concertmaster up. How do you get this double stop? And calling the harpist up. How do you do the pedals on this? Can I do this? <laughs> and, and learning my craft. And uh, from then on, you know, it just grew. And then at my last year in the service, I started writing for Tom Basie. You know, I just admired him and I, I went to hear the band and there was a fellow named Sal Nistico playing saxophone for him and I said you know I was born Sal Nistico I wonder if this fellow's related to me I don't know him and I found out later we were cousins and oh. he said boy you ought to write for Basie I said oh I'm not good enough to write for Count Basie you know <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, but I sent a couple tunes in and from then it grew we did 10 albums do you recall the first uh, song that you sent in? Yeah, the Queen Bee. <laughs> the Queen Bee. That, right? that was after my wife, yeah, the Queen Bee. And I got a call at 2 o'clock, two 3 o'clock in the morning because they worked till, you know, 1 o'clock a lot of times. Uh, got me out of bed. It was Grover Mitchell, the trombonist in the band. He's from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Trombone from Pittsburgh. And he worked for you, Bill, on the emergency yeah. show. Yeah, he worked yeah. on us for a while. And uh, he... Uh, called me and said, the chief, they call him the chief, the chief likes what you're doing, write some more. And that's how it grew, yeah. That must have been a 
proud moment. Oh, yeah, I was just, I said, I can't believe he's playing my music, you know. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, your, your band, there's a question that I've always wanted to ask you, and, and you alluded to it a moment ago. Did, did the success of the records force you to form More or less. official More or band? less, right. There were other factors. Uh, my marriage was disintegrating, and I, I thought it was a good idea to get the hell out on the road for a while, and I did. But after two years, I, you know, playing happy birthday to Myrtle, I gave up on that, you know. So I sold the band to Ray Anthony and uh, came back and got into uh, writing like I had before. Television was just opening up, and I started working on a show called, uh, uh, gosh, I can't. The Naked City. Oh, it's yeah. an old, old. Uh, Beautiful theme you wrote yeah. for that. Yeah. And then uh, one thing and another, I started working with Lionel Newman, who was running 20th Century Fox, in, and I did a lot of junky things for him, uh, <laughs> the Green Hornet and a lot of those kind of. And then when Nelson Riddle was doing Batman. And when he got busy, I had to do Batman while he went to, went to uh, Europe or something. And uh, it just kept going like that. And then Sinatra came on Capitol, and uh, they wanted me to do some work with, with Sinatra. So uh, that we paired up. And uh, the f first things I did, I didn't even write them. The first records had come out because I had the band, it was before I'd given up the band, and I was in uh, Florida, and Alan Livingston, who was president of Capitol, called me and told me they were going to record Sinatra, and they wanted my band to do it, and I said, well, I'm stuck down here, I'm doing one-nighters in Florida, and he said, that's all right, we'll get Nelson Riddle, and he'll write them like you, and uh, he'll use the musicians you use, because they were all local studio guys, and so th I said, that's fine with me. And uh, the records were pretty successful. So after about four or five years, meanwhile, I'd given up the band and I'm you know, doing television work here. And they called me and asked me to do some work for Sinatra. And the first album we did was uh, Come Fly, Come with, Fly me, with Me, which was a big success for Frank. And then I went on doing more work for him. Then when he got in, he got in a fight with Capitol, and I went over to uh, Reprise Records with him, and did some more work over there. But uh, it just kept coming on, you know. Meanwhile, I was doing all kinds of uh, hot dog television shows. And Sam and I worked together on uh, Emergency, Emergency, which was a Jack Webb show. Yeah. Then a couple of his movies, too. We yeah, did. then we did some movies of the week and <laughs> things like that. They so, also had a, a string of children's. Well, that was when I first went to work at Capitol. Yeah. Yeah. I did Bozo the Clown. and. Did you write the, the theme? Yeah, I wrote that. Did you do Rusty and Orchestraville? Did Rusty that, and Orchestraville? That was a great album. Yeah. I My kids are like that one, Bill. I, I know. I'm playing I know. for them. And did you do the, the uh, Tweety? Pie song yes, too. I thought I taught put it that. That's my song. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and I'll tell you a story about that. After we'd, after we'd recorded it and it came out, and everybody said, hey, that's a great song. Let's see. Warner Brothers owned the, the character, see? So they said, well, you've got to sign with, our, with us because Warner Brothers, we own the character. You've got to sign with Warner Brothers music. So we did. So there were three of us that wrote the song. So we each got a third. But then Warner Brothers said, after all, Tweety Pie is a Warner Brothers cartoon character, and we feel Warner Brothers cartoon should share in a writer's share too. So they took another third for that. So I ended up, I wrote the damn song, and I ended up making a half of a sixth or something like that. Boy, does that sound I didn't, familiar. I didn't say, I didn't uh, retire on that song, I'll tell you. <laughs> and that, I remember that, that was big, Bill. Yeah, it was. Very popular yeah, song. Yeah. But they cut the rate away down for me. Mm. Was that pretty common? You were saying that. Uh, that yeah, was, oh, yeah. They try to time. screw you no matter whatever no matter way they what, could. You can't win. It's just, if you're the creator, you're, you're, you're always the low dealing man with a big corporation, you know. Low man on a totem pole. And they have lawyers. And what am I going to do? Start hiring lawyers? I thought one of the, the successes of uh, Johnny Mercer and, and Capital was. He had an eye on that and really tried to structure uh, capital so that it would be less corporate. Was it that way? Uh, I don't. I don't know really. John was a nice man, and I had a lot of work. Did a lot of work with him, and I enjoyed it. But I don't know too much about it. I know he was a very talented lyricist. You know. He he wrote lyrics to three, two or three of my tunes. Yeah. Yeah. He, For the Bing Crosby album. Yeah. And Frank yeah. Sinatra Jr. Yeah. Boy, great lyricist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, blues in the night. Yeah. One I like is, Joe, you'd never know it, but I'm a kind of a poet. <laughs> <laughs> I like the one about the fireman that he sang with Bing Crosby. It had a title so long it, it took like two sentences to write it. I don't, I don't remember. Oh, which. yeah. I forget the name of it. Well, that. That lyric reminds me of uh, one of my favorite things that you did when you were with Barnett was The Wrong Idea. Oh, yeah. that now, was. Tell, tell me about The, the Wrong Idea. We did, <clears throat> they did a, a record called The Count's Idea and The Duke's Idea, which were just imitations of Count Basie and then a imitation of Duke Ellington. And they put it out back to back, and Victor, RCA Victor, it was uh, Bluebird Records in those days. They liked it, and they said, let's make another idea record, you know. So someone came up with the idea, the right idea, and the wrong idea. <laughs> so uh, Skippy Martin wrote a Basie-like original, which they called the right idea, and I wrote the wrong idea and put it on the back. And uh, the wrong idea I copied after, uh, you know, the, the, the Mickey Mouse bands of that day. Uh, Guy Lombardo and Kay Kaiser, and I used all of the tricks that they used, and uh, I had to write a lyric for it, and I couldn't think of who, who could sing the lyric, so I sang it, <laughs> you know, just to get the message across. You know, uh, when you hear this kind of band, that's the wrong idea, you know? <laughs> and it sold about seven. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah.
So that was Billy May and Sammy Nestico, and I love that little part they were talking about, uh, Charlie Barnett. Charlie Barnett's band was fantastic, really tight, really smart, clever lyrics. Um, I, the rhythm section was fantastic, and I love the story behind it. It turns out uh, Mr. Barnett was uh, from a very wealthy family and actually didn't need to get paid. He paid his performers, his musicians, even when they weren't, uh, on the road just to keep them together and make sure they didn't go into another competing band. And as a result, he was able to hire the best, and he certainly did. And among them, Billy May being one of the arrangers for the band. Uh, Billy was also, um, not, it wasn't well um, outlined in this little segment, but he was the trumpet player with uh, Glenn Miller for a long time. In fact, um, he does a little solo in the very big hit record called In the Mood that was sort of uh, an anthem of the big band era that's on the uh, movie Sun, Sun Valley Serenade. You can actually see Billy playing there. And what's cool about Billy to me, I mean, he went on to do movies and television uh, theme songs. Is uh, you know He worked a lot with um, arranging for singers, Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, and so on. Uh, Nat King Cole did some great stuff. He did the 1958 arrangement of Fly Me to the Moon, which we still hear today by Frank Sinatra. Um, but what's neat, and I think most compelling about Billy, and you certainly can pick it up from listening to him, is the humor. This guy made sure that he put humor in his music, which is a very important part of music. I think the, uh, the second we forget that as musicians, I think the second we're in trouble. There always should be an element of surprise and innovation, but also humor. Um, and speaking of that, he uh, talked the, um, the voice of Bugs Bunny, Mel Blanc, into recording one of his songs in 1950 uh, called, I Taught I Saw a Putty Tat. <laughs> and uh, I have to make sure I pronounce that right. It's T-A-T, not C-A-T. And um, yeah, so just a, a great a great guy. And I was really, really happy that we could get him uh, to, um, to agree to do the interview. He wasn't really thrilled about it, but what put him over the top was our local friend here in Carlsbad, who happens to be the internationally known arranger and composer Sammy Nestico, talked him into it. So they had sort of a chat session together. I'm not even sure I asked too many questions. They just sort of talked and it was amazing. Uh, Sammy, who's uh, still with us here in Carlsbad, um, probably best known for the work that he did in the late 60s all the way until the passing of Count Basie with the Count Basie Orchestra, playing trombone with Tommy Dorsey, Woody Herman, uh, Gene Krupa for a bit. And also with uh, Charlie Barnett, which is, of course, where he met uh, Billy May. And uh, they worked together a lot, too, as a matter of fact, uh, Billy May and uh, Nestico on a couple of different projects uh, for Sinatra and Bing Crosby, I think, come to mind. So um, and I think just about every jazz um, student who's been in the jazz band in high school knows there's got to be at least one or two Nestico arrangements that they've played over the years. Um, so a wonderful opportunity for us as we're talking about the overview of the big band era to talk about the element of arrangers and how important they were. Um, for those of you who would like to learn a little bit more, I would uh, implore you to learn about Fletcher Henderson, who is the arranger for the um, the Benny Goodman Orchestra. Fletcher had his own big band in the early days, in the 20s, and uh, became an arranger for Benny Goodman. 
really helping that band create its own sound and uniqueness, being able to play off of each other. I mean, the way the clarinets play off the saxophone section is unlike any other band I think I've ever heard. So the importance of the arranger really is a major, major component of what the big bands were, which I appreciate uh, in the outline that Michelle created. That's the first subject that we talk about. A little bit later on, we're going to be hearing about songwriters and the band leaders and the singers, but the fact that we're starting off with the arrangers, I think Sammy would be very proud of you. (laughs) And to echo what Michelle said a little bit earlier as well, um, these are not even close to the only arrangers that we have in the collection um, associated with the big band era. And if you want to check out more of these interviews, we have them all posted on nam.org slash library. That's N-A-M-M dot org slash library. And we have a few different tags you can look through. We have an arrangers tag, a big band era tag. We also have a tag that is called audio only, which houses all of Dan's pre-NAM radio interviews, um, where you'll get to hear 15 to 18 year old Dan Del Fiorentino <laughs> interviewing some of the big band era's greatest people, which is... Hi, Mr. Crosby, how are you? <laughs> it's kind of funny to hear the contrast there, but all Thanks good for pointing that out, Mike. <laughs> Unplug your microphone. <laughs> Just add that disclaimer that if you do search those tags, you might be lost for a couple hours. And <laughs> blame it on me. <laughs> so moving on to our final segment of this first part, all about the big band era, we're going to he- be hearing about the songwriters, which are kind of important when it comes to making <laughs> music. you got to have a song to play. And who else is better to hear from than Dick Jurgens? So, Dan, why don't you give us just kind of a bullet point uh, rundown of Dick Jurgens before we hear from him, if that's even possible. So if I see you, you know, giving me the cutoff <laughs> signal, I'll know I've talked too long. Well, I just want to say this. I'll back up uh, just slightly in that absolutely you can't have anything without the song, right? That's where it all starts. And so for the big band era, what was a major component was the fact that this was also the birth and development of Ten Pan Alley and the American Songbook as we now know it with people like Jerome Kern and Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and George Gershwin. I mean, these guys are turning out some of the most amazing music ever, and these bands are just gobbling it up. I mean, back in the day, in the the 30s in particular, every band would cover the same song because they had their own arranger and their own singers and their own instrumentalists so they could sound different and add their own sort of uniqueness to it, their own personal stamp. And as a result, it didn't matter if... there was 30 different versions of the same song people still wanted to hear it and it was still compelling and that popularity i think led to um a lot of bands wanting to have their own songs okay we have the general song that's very popular everybody knows right putting on the ritz and blue skies but I have my own band i want to have our own sound our own songs so people uh, almost just about every band I can think of had at least a songwriter or someone within the band that wrote at least the theme song, if not several of their own signature tunes. And these would be songs at the beginning of their concert, their theme song, and the closing theme song, songs that go to commercial. And then if they became popular, of course, that would be in their regular repertoire that they would play on a regular basis. And Dick Jurgens, who was, I would consider a society-style band who played a lot of ballrooms all around the country, including at the Aragon for many, many years in Chicago. Um, He was just like that. He was a songwriter. He wrote their theme song, uh, Daydreams Come True at Night, which I think is a great title. Um, 
and several other big hits that went on to be hits for other people, as a matter of fact. Careless was a big, big hit for Eddie Howard and later recorded by several other people. So Dick really had an understanding of why he, what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it um, as far as the songwritings go. I want to mention also in 1939, he also recorded One Dozen Roses, uh, which was a, a, you know, one of his signature songs, Careless. And then he also wrote the song called Elmer's Tune. Are we going to be hearing about that? You are. Ha-ha, yep. So I can't give it away. <laughs> so I would love to have you take a few minutes to remember my friend Dick Jurgens. When along the road did you uh, meet Eddie Howard? Eddie Howard joined our band in 1927. He came into Sacramento from San Jose in Woodland with a fellow named Scott Held who had a band at the Sacramento Hotel. And Eddie and I got together and became friends and he liked my band, I liked his singing, so we got together. He stayed with me until 1941. Quite a while. And at that time, did he start his own orchestra? He left to join some other bands. He wanted to go on his own as a soloist, as a solo, as a you know, a singing star, mm-hmm. which he did for a while, and then he organized his own band again. And by the time when I went into service in 43, he was well on his way with his own band. I and that's see. when he had uh, to each his own and uh, several other big hits that he had. So was he pretty well known while he was working with you? He was kind of building up his um, fame right. while working with you? Well, I, I thought he was the greatest band vocalist that there ever was, Dan, because, well, he sang the way we played, and we played the way he sang. That's how I felt about it. And uh, we got along great, and I always thought that Eddie was the greatest. He could get out of bed and start singing. He didn't have to warm up or anything. Huh. Just a natural, natural singer, and very good friend, very dear friend of mine. Died about 1946, I think. I mean, I mean, 64. I mean, yeah. You uh, wrote your theme song. I wrote our theme song for a high school examination, Dan. Hmm. Daydreams come true at night. I wrote it uh, just for a simple song, and my girlfriend, who I met at Lake Tahoe, wrote the words. And I had to had to change the words when we when we became professionals because they weren't quite uh, suited for the uh, for, for country for, for all around the country. They were a little bit more intimate than that. Mm-hmm. But it was always called "Daydreams Come True at Night." I see. Well, that's great. We wrote a lot of songs, Eddie and and Luke Quadlin and I. We wrote uh, Elmer's Tune, One Dozen Roses, Careless. A Million Dreams Ago, If I Knew Then What I Know Now, and several other dogs, too. <laughs> not, not too good of tunes. But we had some great songs, and they were all within a three- or four-year period. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, how did Elmer's Tune come about? Elmer's Tune, Dan, was written by a guy, <coughs> myself, a guy named Elmer, who used to live near the Aragon in Chicago. That's my idea of the world's greatest ballroom. I don't know if you've ever been there or not. But uh, he lived near the Aragon. He was an undertaker's assistant. He was just an assistant undertaker there for some guy. And he used to come in the Aragon and practice. Mr. Carzas, who ran the Aragon, let him come in there at noontime when he had his lunch and practice a little bit on the Aragon piano. He loved to play that piano. And he used to go da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. He drove me nuts. I used to come over there to answer my letters and stuff. So I got together with him and I finished the darn thing. I put in the middle part and the last part and we started to play it. 
And my golly, it was such a it was such a immediate hit. I couldn't believe it because I had been playing songs for a long time at the Oregon, but none of them came with the Elmer's tune. Everybody was singing it and requesting it every night. We used to play when Elmer came in. We'd just play, but we had no lyrics, no words for the song. So I was calling Elmer's tune so I could program it on the air. See, so. Uh, Glenn Miller called me. He says, "Dick, what is this Elmer's tune that you're playing there?" I said, "Well, it's a song that we've written, and it seems to be going over very well." He said, well, I, "I want it. I want to record it, but we have to have a lyric." So I quick like called a guy down in Chicago's Loop named uh, Sammy Gallup, G A L L O P. He's a, uh, a lyric writer. I said, "Sammy, I've got a piece of material here." I don't know how you could write a lyric for it. We already have a title called Elmer's Tune. And I said, do you think you can do it? He said, well, that's pretty tough, but I'll try it. So he got on the elevator and came out to the Aragon, which took him about a half hour. I gave him the lyric, and he called me about a half hour later on his way back and said, we well, use your lyric. We never changed one word of it after that. Huh. That's he great. Instantly. He just got a good idea, you know, and did it. That's, that's great. Uh, did you um, know Glenn Miller? Oh, sure. I knew Glenn very well. I knew Glenn in Denver, even, when he was playing around Denver as a Denver boy. And what year is this about? Oh, I'd say about uh, 36, 37. Mm-hmm. I was playing the, the Edith Gardens at Denver. And, and so did, he was just starting his uh, own orchestras at that time, or...? established musician by this time, but he hadn't had his own band. He was a trombonist, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just organized his own band, yes, before he started to tour around the country. He worked with uh, Tommy Dorsey, I believe. I think he did. Yeah, he was he was a great guy, this Glenn Miller. So was Dorsey. I knew him both very well. Both uh, Jimmy and Tommy, or? Both of them. Yeah, mm -hmm. Jimmy and saxophone and Tommy and trombone. Yeah, we get to know all the, all the, all the leaders because we were always passing them on the road someplace and talking to them and meeting them and having dinner with them and so forth. Did you find that most of them were pretty nice guys? Oh, yes. Especially Tommy. Tommy was a very condescending, very likable guy, very... Well, just a real nice guy. He's, he, he loved to talk to guys. He loved to help bands, and he, and he always did. He came to my, my rehearsals many times to hear my band, even. Hmm. He liked it so much. Okay, uh, let's go now. You entered um, World War II. Um, 1943. Right, in the Marine Corps. Uh -huh. Did you um, find that many other leaders were also doing the same thing, or people in your band? Was it, or were you No, I enlisted. A lot of them got some commissions. Glenn Miller was commissioned a lieutenant, I guess, in the Air Force. And uh, I, uh, I enlisted. I. Uh, I was going to go in the Navy. They were going to put me under Eddie Peabody as a as a Lieutenant JG, but I never heard from the Navy after I signed up for him. So I went home to Sacramento here and joined the Marine Corps and went in as a radio operator. I was I've always been interested in radio and, and electronics, so I became a speed key operator in the Marine Corps. And uh, my brother about this time joined the Marine Corps also. So we decided to get together a little entertainment unit which we organized at Camp Elliott and Camp Pendleton. We started to go to the outposts at these two places and play for the guys. Finally, we got the idea, why can't we form an all-marine entertainment unit? And that's exactly what it was on paper. It was the official 
entertainment unit of the Marine Corps in 1943 when we went overseas. That's great. We were over there two and a half years. Huh. About 59 islands out there. It was quite an experience. Uh, at the end of the war, um, did you immediately try to get a, a, the band started again? Or? Yes, at the end of 1946. My brother and I, my brother was also with me in the Marine Corps, as I said, and he came, we came back and organized immediately. We got a few guys out of the Marine Corps and some other fellows from Air Force bands around the country, and we, we met in Sacramento, rehearsed the band, and went to Chicago, mm -hmm. to the Aragon. Uh, did your brother have, uh, Will is his name? Yes. Did he have a part in um, your earlier bands before the war? He joined my band in, in 37. Uh-huh. I see. That's and, great. Uh, well, we were partners, and he was—he did all the paperwork. He paid the guys. He did all the routine things and planned the transportation and everything. He took care of everything except the music, which I did. Hmm. Sounds like a great Making team. Good. Was the threat of the new type of music developing at that time, rock and roll, uh, a threat to bands? Well... Enough... A lot of bands will say that's what, what caused the bands to break up, but with me, I was very fortunate. We weren't having any trouble getting jobs. We were doing fine. We could have continued, I believe. But, of course, we knew we were well aware that things were changing. Mm -hmm. And I guess if I had stayed in, I would might have changed along with them, but I didn't. So when I came back in about 1966 to play the Willowbrook in Chicago, I went back there with my old library and played the old book played the old songs and added a few new songs and, and played them in, in, in the same old fashion that we had all already played. I'd like to uh, throw a couple of names your way sure. um, from the big band era um, and give your thoughts if you could. First of all, um, uh, one of the great writers, in fact he has been called American Popular Music, Irving Berlin. He came to Aragon to hear my band because we, we, when we published our songs, we published two of them with Irving Berlin, Careless and Elmer's Tune, were both published by Irving Berlin Music Company. And he came to the Aragon to see how these things got started there. And I spent an evening with Irving Berlin, a very fine gentleman, Dan. He was a real, real quiet man, very concerned about how his songs were played and who played them, and uh, a, real, a real artist in this field. Told me all about that piano of his with a gear shift on it so he could play in the same key all the time, you know. He had his piano fixed so that he could, uh, he could only play in a couple of keys, but it was fixed so he could uh, transpose everything by shifting keys on the piano. I see. <laughs> yeah, it was quite a clever thing. But he was a very nice fellow, and uh, did you hear his, uh, his show the other night? Yeah, on PBS? Yeah. Boy, that was outstanding, wasn't it? Uh -huh. That was correct. That was he that sang the, the God Bless America at the end there. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, yeah, he's uh, still living in New York, as I understand. Yes. How old is he? 98 or something? Yeah. His, oh, I can't imagine. His birthday is um, <coughs> May 11th. And so... He, he used to come out, he used to go out and sing his songs with the band leaders in those days to sell the song. That's how... Uh, 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 how ordinary the guy was. He used to sell his own song for his company by going out singing and playing the songs hmm. to the band leaders. So he had song players in those days. 
songbookers were guys who worked for the big publishers in New York, and they had them in Chicago and in Hollywood, Los Angeles. And on certain nights of the week, they would come out to where you were playing and try to get you to play these songs, to, to plug, to give them a plug, they called it. Mm -hmm. And they would come out there and sing them or demonstrate them or have you look them over and uh, do favorites for you if you would play them, like, you know, take you to dinner or something like that. <laughs> and uh, it was quite a deal. It was quite a romance. But So Irving Berlin did some of this by himself? Yes, sir. He came out and demonstrated his own song. <laughs> this is, now, this is, again, this is in the late 20s and 30s. This is a long time ago. Right. But he was a young man, too. Well, he was, by that time, he was well-established as a writer. Right. Uh, Alexander's Ragtime Band was written before then, so he was quite popular. Well, he wrote so many hundred songs, you can't even begin to call them all. <laughs> yeah. Did you like his songs? Oh, yes. In fact, I um, am one, probably one of the biggest Irving Berlin fans alive, I, I hope I can call myself. I, I admire the man up and down. I just... Uh, Did you have any favorites of his? Well, um... Boy, that's 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 a tough one because like always yeah, oh yeah, always is Blue Skies. That's Blue sky, oh, yeah. Alexander's Ragtime Band oh, and yeah. Easter Parade is another great one. Yeah. The the, un the unfortunate thing about two of his songs, um, White Christmas and um, Easter Parade, they're seasonal, so a lot of people don't play them all year long like they should be because they're fantastic. Yeah, well, that's right. There's, like you say, the seasonal is not appropriate during yeah. the year with those kind of lyrics. But he he uh, kept writing songs up until the 1970s, I understand. So we can still do it, I guess, if we wanted to. Oh yeah, he had the, he has the talent, I'm sure. Okay, that was Dick Jurgens, and I just love that story about Elmer's tune. Uh, I always had this concept that maybe if I ever write a book, it's going to be called Do You Hear What I Hear, with the idea that once you hear the story behind the song, you're going to hear the song differently than you had heard before. And Elmer's tune is certainly that. I mean, you hear this song, da da ba da da ba da da I mean, I don't hear that the same way now that I know that a... Um, the assistant to the funeral director had come up with that song and it became a big hit for Glenn Miller and the Modern Airs. Very, very funny story. Dick was such a great guy. I just want to leave you uh, with one more story. When I was asking him, hey, Dick, um, I would love to get some more of your music. You know, where can I find some of your records? And he says, well, Dan, you got to go to my distributor. I says, oh, yeah, who's that? He says, the Salvation Army. <laughs> <laughs> clever, very clever. <laughs> Thank you very much, you guys, uh, for helping put this together. I think it's uh, amazing to take the opportunity to dig into the archives of the NAM Oral History Program to uh, come up with some of the history of the big bands. Well, and special thanks to Dan for recording these interviews well before his time here at NAM, so that we can use them now with all of our NAM affiliated podcasts and and other stuff that we do. Um, so this is the end of part one, all about big bands. And in two weeks, we're going to come back with part two. And Michelle, why don't we give a little teaser? What's going to be going on in part two? Well, I mean, we we barely scratched the surface. So in part two, we're going to talk a little bit about the sidemen. Uh, we'll hear from band leaders and some singers of the big band era. Thanks for joining us. We will see you again in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. 
This has been Mike Mullins, Michelle Shedler, and Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.